Dear people, this is Mordecai Joseph. We are now in Lesson 68 in the book of Malachi. Last time we covered the first few scriptures showing the attitude of God, the God of Israel, toward the son of his beloved servant Isaac, Edom. He had two sons, twin brothers, one Jacob, one Edom. And God made it very plain as he's speaking to his own people. And he's not too complimentary toward his own people either because of their attitude. And so he's reminding them that though brother Jacob uh, had a twin brother, yet God chose Jacob, loved Jacob, and not Esau. And he didn't love Esau because of his attitude, because Jacob, the father of the nation Israel, finally overcame while Edom went his own way. And in so many ways that uh, a lot of people don't even realize in what directions he went. And many, as a matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of the children of Edom lost their identity too, just like the children of Israel don't even know who they are. But God knows who they are. The Bible makes it very plain. History makes it very plain to this very day. Anyway, God says that he hated the attitude of Edom. And as the scripture says, as you think, so you are. And if your pattern of thinking is hateful to God, and God hates that, it is you that he hates, because you are what you think. People say, well, God loves sinners. He doesn't hate sinners. Of course, he doesn't hate sinners, you know, ultimately speaking. But he hates what they do, and what they do makes them what they are. And that's what he's saying here. There is no need to apologize for God for saying, well, God didn't say he hates Edom, he just loves less. No, when we are evil, God hates the wicked. God is angry with the wicked every day. That's what the scriptures tell us. And we don't need to apologize for that. We have to repent, not apologize. And so he says about uh, Edom, uh, verse 4, Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. In other words, well, God can punish us all he wants. We're going to rebuild. And that was the attitude of pride that was on the part of Edom. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the eternal of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. And you see the rebellious attitude here on the part of Edom. Just like you see the same attitude in the book of Revelation at the end. They know that God is punishing them, but instead of repenting, what do they do? They're cursing. And they would not repent. And so we find Edom in that state of mind. And not every single one of them, there are a lot of them who are very, very beautiful people. But he's speaking in general about the nation, about the people. That's a, that's a character. And so that's what God says. They're going to build. Okay, I'm going to throw down. And they shall call, be called the territory of wickedness. That's how God regards these people. And the people against whom the eternal will have indignation forever. Because they continue in that state of mind. And throughout the scriptures, as you studied you know, very carefully, you see how God links oftentimes the people of Edom with Babylon, the physical and the spiritual. And as I mentioned earlier, in the days of Rome, the Jews called Rome Edom. Because historically, some of the, some elements of the people of Edom went in that direction. And later on, you see with the rise of the false church, of the counterfeit church, that Edom was very involved in it. 
and even the major part of, of them, uh, they spread in many areas, but the major part of them that went to Spain, they were the champions of the church, the false church, the counterfeit church. And in the Middle East, they were the champions of another false religion that rose there and claims to be the true religion and has a, a prophet that claims to be the true prophet. And uh, we're not going to go into that later on. Sometimes, God willing, if we have the opportunity, we may go through the history of Edom as God recorded it and as history recorded it and not as some who misunderstood not having proper information and misapplied it to a nation that is certainly not Edom, speaking about Turkey. And so God says, but he has indignation forever toward these people. In verse 5, your eyes shall see and you shall say, the eternal is magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, God tells Jacob, your brother Esau totally went astray, became a very wicked person. I will constantly bring destruction on him and affliction. Uh, yet on you, I will not have indignation forever. I'm going to forgive you and bring you back because Jacob repents. After all, Jacob... Uh, was not just by nature, but was a totally different person uh, than Edom, and he repented. And so God knows that all of Israel are going to repent. And ultimately speaking, when God deals with Edom, they too are going to repent. And so God is a God of the whole earth, but in the meantime, there are people who have special problems. And God, you know, like... Uh, special uh, difficulties that some kids have nowadays or any other time and he called them special problem children whatever this was Edom but Jacob was not too far behind and sometimes Jacob behaved in a way that was even worse than Edom so nobody's a uh, in other words God is not a respecter of persons toward anybody and nobody's a is a pet uh, you know favorite pet of God you obey God you serve God uh, you will be on the good side of God. That's the only way to do it. And so we continue the story in chapter 3. And basically in chapter 1, you're seeing, as you saw in many other places, and there are many chapters that deal with that, where God is contrasting the two churches, the church of Israel, his people, which is through the, uh, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, and then the other church, Babylon, which is oftentimes linked to Edom the twin brother of Jacob. And there is an awful lot of history behind it. In chapter 3, we continue to read uh, verse 1. And here, it's not the God of Israel who is speaking, that is, the one that became Jesus Christ, but his Father is speaking here. And many people don't realize the Father speaks often throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, uh, more often than people may realize. And they're not aware of it because they're not, I'm not reading it carefully. And it's being referred to also many times. Like David says, you know, the Lord said unto my Lord. So he's aware of the fact that, that the Father is also involved. And Jesus Christ made it very plain. And people don't realize that to this very day. That the Father is very much involved in the affairs of, of men. He's just not, not speaking to them. And he's not revealing himself to them as uh, his son did because that was the commission of his son to be dealing with humanity on a personal basis. But Jesus Christ made it very plain when he spoke to, to uh, his people. When he was here on the, on the earth, he said, of myself I can do nothing, but whatever I see the Father do, that I do too. He says, my Father works, and I work too. See, the Father is very much involved. 
And he went beyond that saying that as I see the Father raise the dead and heal the sick, and so do I also. And people don't realize that the Father is involved personally in raising dead and healing the sick and, and hearing people and speaking to people and all that. Uh, just not, he's not involved uh, with humanity as uh, the one that became Jesus Christ, his son, is. In Son chapter 3, we read one instance of that. In verse 1, Behold, the Father is saying, I send my messenger. And the word here is Malach, or Malachi. And that's why God chose the name of the prophet, uh, whose name also my messenger, Malachi. Messenger and, and angel are the same word in Hebrew. And so God says, Behold, I send my messenger, or my, my, my angel. And he will prepare the way before me. You see? Well, here, uh, the one that is speaking here in particular is the one that became Jesus Christ. But in verse 2, And the Eternal whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Eternal of hosts. And verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. This is the New King James Version. And verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. You see the emphasis that he's putting on here, his people, his nation, the tribe that he chose to be the tribe of the priests and the educators of Israel. God constantly speaks about his own people. So when he's talking about the commission of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, and he's the messenger of the Father, the message and the emphasis of it is upon the children of Israel, because that's his wife, that's his people, and he's coming to atone for their sins. And that's how he's going to purify the sons of Levi and the rest of the land of Israel, the people of Israel, his church, his wife. And so he's going to refine them. He's going to purify them and he's going to do it with his own blood, with his own sacrifice. And then also with the trials that he's going to bring upon them. And so he says, And he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. The sacrifices are not done away with. And so God is going to purify Levi so they can bring back Israel to their God through offerings and sacrifices. And people who do not understand what the apostles were talking about because they had no background to what they were saying, uh, misunderstood what they were saying. Paul made it very plain. But we do understand it's not something that was new. David understood that too, and all the other prophets of God and servants of God understood it. It's not the sacrifice that atones really for your sin. In other words, it doesn't purge your conscience. It just makes it possible for you to approach God and to continue to stand before Him. But as for the forgiveness of sin itself, that only God can do. And it's not your sacrifice that does it. And so when Christ came, there was the ultimate sacrifice that was given, and therefore people can come up to God and approach Him directly through Jesus Christ. 
But that does not mean that the sacrifices that were always there are done away with because their purpose was to begin with not to purge the conscience but to fulfill a requirement that God always wanted. And that is a token of your appreciation for God of appreciation of what you have done to acknowledge your responsibility. It has many other purposes and it's, none of them is really to atone for sin. Well, you know, the purging of the conscience, that can be done only by God himself. And God made it very plain from the beginning until the end. So there was nothing new about it that the apostles had explained. This is what David said after he committed, you know, the great sin with Bathsheba and uh, the murder of her husband. He said in Psalm 51, if you wanted sacrifices, I would have offered, to, uh, offered it to you. But he understood it's not through sacrifices that you really atone for your sins. But he said, but what you want is really a broken heart. And a contrite spirit. So there was nothing new about this understanding that it's not a sacrifice that atones for your sin, but it is a broken heart and a contrite spirit and repentance before God, and then God purges your your conscience. And that's how the forgiveness comes about. And yet the offerings were a manner uh, that the people of God who were physical, who were carnal, who didn't have the Holy Spirit, could approach God, and that's the only way they could. But that doesn't mean that even the spiritual among them did not uh, need to do those things because the law was applicable to all of them. And so you see David still offering you know, sacrifices and you see the apostles still involved in offering sacrifices and bringing offerings to the temple and Paul did to the last trip that he made to Jerusalem. He had a Nazarite vow and he shaved his head and he had others that he took with him and he paid uh, for their expenses in terms of the buying of the sacrifices and going through the temple and they're all purified. So the law of the sacrifices and the offerings that they fully understood was necessary because God made it necessary, but without repentance and without the being purged of the conscience by God himself, all the sacrifices would be of no, you know, of no good to you. It would not avail anything. And so that's basically what they were teaching. But before that, there was no way for the people of God who were carnal to approach God but through the sacrifices. But now we can approach directly the Father through His Son, His sacrifice. In other words, you still have to approach God through a sacrifice. So the concept of uh, offering the sacrifices never ceased. And so this is what God is saying here. This is Jesus Christ speaking. And you think that He knows what He's talking about and therefore the apostles are not going to contradict Him. He's going to purify the sons of Levi so that they may offer to the eternal, that is to Jesus Christ, who is going to be in the temple, an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the eternal. You read here about Judah and Jerusalem because the prophet is sent to them. That's why he's mentioning them. But that is applicable to all the children of Israel, as you see in other places. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the eternal. This is speaking about Jesus Christ as in the days of old, as in the former years. You know, business as usual when they come back. There isn't going to be any change. temple will be rebuilt. The priesthood will be sanctified. They will be offering all the sins that were offered in Leviticus. And you can go to the last eight chapters, as we did a little bit, and read all those details there, and compare it to the sacrifices in Leviticus, and they're basically the same. The sin offering, the transgression offering, you know, the peace offering, all those offerings and sacrifice is going to be there. And verse 5, And I will come near you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, 
against adulterers, against perjurers, you know, those who are lying, and when you say that the sacrifice is done away with, and when it's not applicable to us, and we shouldn't be doing them, and all these things, you are a perjurer. And against those who exploit wage earners, and widows, and orphans, social problems, and against those who turn away an alien, you know, the, the, the immigrants in this land, you know, they're not doing too well with that, the attitude is not that well, that nice, as it should be with the aliens. God says you treat them nice. You know, it's not that you open the borders and all of them come to your land and you're inundated by them, but at least, you know, those who are among you, treat them nice. Pay them decent wages. And yet all those poor aliens have to live uh, on a uh, minimum wage and oftentimes far below that. And Jacob is taking advantage of them and God is going to make Jacob pay back when the time comes because God hates that. He hates robbery. And when you exploit the alien, you're in the category that God hates. And it's going to come to a swift judgment. And if there are any among us who happen to be in that condition, who are employing aliens, we better be careful. Because this is a judgment against us that God had recorded a long time ago, then he is going to fulfill it. Take it personally. As it says in verse 5, And I will come near you, whatever your name is, for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against you. You know, against those who are turning away the, uh, the alien. Because they do not fear me. That's why they do it, says the eternal ho of hosts. God gave laws and Israel better obey them. And one of them, some of the laws that he gave are concerning the aliens, the strangers of the gates. He said, you know, you treat them as your own. And when you pay your own decent wages, you pay the alien decent wages, according to the whatever they're worth to you. And that's a part of the judgment on Israel. And yet, though God is going to come to judgment against his people, he's going to deliver people. And so he says to his people, Israel, for I am the eternal and I do not change. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yesterday he said that he's going to choose Israel forever and he swore to their fathers they're going to be with him and he's going to make a covenant forever and he hasn't changed that. He says, for I am the eternal, I do not change. Just like in the days of old, when he punished his people, you know, his people for disobedience, he's going to do it in the future. And they can say, all they want, the law is done away with. I'm not going to get away with it. Because the law is not done away with, because Jesus Christ has not changed. People think that a new God appeared on the scene 2,000 years ago, and it's called the God of the Christians, and he did away with the law. And those are perjurers, and those are liars who say that. Christ said, I do not change. He's the one that spoke in Mount Sinai, and he's the one that spoke in Jerusalem when he came in the flesh, and he's the one who is coming to deal with the children of Israel. And many of them are claiming to be children of righteousness, you know, born-again Christians or Christians or whatever it may be, you know, members of Christianity, and they're lying. And they're saying the law is done away with, and they're lying. And they're saying that you go to heaven, and they're lying, or you go to hell, and they're lying, because Christ made very plainly this statement. No man ascends up to heaven. And so God is going to deal with all these liars among his people and others. And then after that, still going to deliver them. So in verse 6, For I am the eternal, I do not change. Therefore you, speaking of his people, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. 
In other words, God is never going to reject his people with all the wickedness that is in them. He's going to purge them, refine them, purify them, punish them, take them back to himself. And that's what he said when he came. I will build my church that has been scattered, that has gone into darkness, iniquity, and transgression, that has committed a lot of evil upon the face of the earth, that turned into idolatry in many ways, did all those things, but I'm going to build them in righteousness and in truth and in light and in purity, and they shall be my people and they shall be the light of the nations. And that's a story from the beginning until the end. And many of them do not even acknowledge their heritage and who they are. When you tell them, they hate it. They don't like to hear it. Their minds are thinking, well, I don't want to be Jewish, and I don't want the Jewish law either. Well, God is going to have to deal with that and help them change their mind a little bit. And so now we read in verse in chapter 4. In the Hebrew Scriptures, you don't find chapter 4. It's all linked to the same chapter. And to begin with, there are no chapters. But here it is. In the English Bibles, chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, that's a lake of fire, so to speak, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, speaking by his own people, as well as others, for the emphasis is on, is on his own people, and the, day sh- uh, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. In other words, when you're burned up, you're burned up. You're not burning up in hell. It's just gone. You know, you set uh, something on fire and it's gone. It's consumed. It's ashes. And so the doctrine of hell is a lie. It's of the devil and it's not of God. And you know, most of the people of Israel, both the houses of Israel and Judah, believe this lie to this very day. They believe in heaven and hell. And God says, I'm going to deal with this kind of uh, liars, perjurers, who are lying against the truth. And so God says, the day is coming, which is, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the eternal of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Now when you are burned in hell, you are alive forever. You got immortality. And God says, you don't have immortality. When you die, you, you know, you go into the dust. What dust you are, and after dust you shall return. There is a spirit in you, but that spirit is not a person. This is what operates you. And so, the people that God is going to throw into this fire that is going to make their literal fire, he says it will live in neither root nor branch. Totally gone. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healings in his wings, or in its wings. You know, he is, uh, is not uh, proper because, uh, at least in English, his is for a person and the Son is not a person should be its wings. And you shall go out and grow like you grow fat like soul fed cows, and you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. This is the truth of God, this is the word of God, no hell. And all those who say otherwise are liars. And the rabbis are liars. And the ministers of Israel and the bishops and the cardinals and all those are all liars. This is what God calls them, and that he's going to deal with them for lying to his people instead of teaching the truth. But if you're going to continue to be wicked, you're just going to be burned in a lake of fire, in a fire that is a lake of fire that is a real one, real fire, physical fire, and you will become ashes. And you're going to be screaming forever and ever in hell. 
That's wickedness, you know, to say that, that God is going to do that to his children. Make them roast in the fire forever. So these are blasphemers who are speaking these lies. And God is going to deal with them. And that tells you who are the false prophets and who are the true prophets of God. And so God says, you're going to be ashes under your feet, the soles of your feet. And on, you know, on the day that I do this, God is going to do that. He's going to burn them, going to be ashes. Says the eternal hosts. And then he's telling to all of his people Israel. And the entirety of this book, from Genesis, the first verse to the last verse in Revelation, is the book of Israel. And the counterfeit church divided it into two. One, they say, well, that's for Israel, the old stuff, Old Testament, they call it. And God said, no, this is the law, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And those who call themselves by his name, who follow his, in his footsteps, should use his terminology. Not the terminology of the counterfeit church. It's not Old Testament. It's the Torah, body of teachings, and the prophets, and the writings. And so when the, new, you know, the disciples came on the scene, they continued to write. And those became part of the writings. And they included prophecy. And they included also teachings of law, of the Torah. It's all a part of the same. And so God says to his people, verse 4, Jesus Christ is speaking here, and the Father is speaking to all of us too. Remember, not forget, remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. It's not a Mosaic law. Moses didn't, you know, sit and start inventing laws. Jesus Christ commanded that law, and so, therefore, those who say that Jesus Christ came in the New Testament and did away with the law are liars. And those who claim that his disciples had done that, like Paul and others, are also liars. That's what Paul said in Galatians, you know, that those people who are preaching another gospel, which is not really another gospel, just a bunch of lies. And if anybody comes and teaches anything that is different than what we have taught, let him be accursed. And he said it twice. Many people still do to this very day. And some people who call themselves the people of God, they too are going in that direction, some of them. But they think, well, the law is not really applicable to us. It's Old Testament stuff. We're a New Testament church. We don't need this. We don't need that. And they have contempt for the Torah of God. They don't even want to hear the word. And as soon as they tell them that you're going to teach them about the law of God, about the Torah of God, they say, oh, we don't want to hear that. Teach us the New Testament. Are they really of God? Jesus Christ says, verse 4, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commended him in Horeb for all Israel, all of them, with the statutes and judgments. Some people like to talk about the law. says, well, that's Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. You hear it everywhere. Ten Commandments. It's not what God said. He says, you remember the Torah. That's the entirety of it. That's what the Torah is. Of my servant Moses, which I commanded him in horror for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And you better remember them by first teaching them and then doing them at the same time. Not just teaching and not doing. And we're speaking about obviously all those things that are applicable to us. There's no temple, many things we cannot do. With the statutes and judgments. And in verse 5 he's in essence telling us how is it going to be done. 
How, how is Israel? All of Israel is going to know about it because Israel has been in darkness for centuries, 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, 2,800 years to one degree or the other. And so in verse 5 he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And speaking about somebody coming in the spirit, obviously, of Elijah the prophet, because if you don't understand the biblical lingo, you will get mixed up. You think, really, Elijah is coming. No, Elijah is not coming. Elijah is dead and buried, awaiting the resurrection. Now, when he's resurrected, then he's coming. But he's talking about before the resurrection. And so he's going to send somebody in the spirit of Elijah. That's what he means. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the, of the eternal. Before the coming of Jesus Christ, he's going to send somebody in the spirit of Elijah. And what is it that Elijah did? Elijah said, look, God is God. And if he is God, you walk in his Torah, obey his voice. And John the Baptist came and did that too. He was the second Elijah. There was the first Elijah, the true one. And he is dead and buried. But the second one that came in that spirit called John. And that's why that was the emphasis of his message. There is a Torah of God. You've been transgressing it. Unless you repent, God is going to burn you up. You're going to be ashes. He's referring to this prophecy here in Malachi that we are reading right now. And so the third one who is coming uh, in the future is going to give the same message. And he's going to read these very scriptures. And if we are alive around that time, we're going to hear him say those things, wherever that person is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. And he will turn, by teaching the Torah, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. And this is speaking uh, in two ways. That the children of Israel ought to return to their fathers to whom the covenants were given. And then the fathers will be turned to them, just like you read in a parable. Well, this is speaking like in a parable. As you read in the parable, when the, you know, the poor man, Lazarus, died, he went into the bosom of the father Abraham. In other words, you're going to have a relationship with them because the covenants were given to them since they obeyed the Torah of God that was given to them, and they were fully aware of whatever laws God gave them. And God made it very plain that long before Sinai, Abraham was obeying his commandment, his charge, his statutes, and his judgments, you know, whatever God told him to do. And Sinai, the law was codified all over again, and many things were added also. But it's not that Israel was without law all this time. That law was from, from the Garden of Eden. And so this is what, what Elijah is going to do. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and that's speaking also about the family that is broken in all directions. And it's not a family anymore as it should be. And many people don't even know what a family is, especially when they watch TV. And he says, if that is not done, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, I'm going to bring utter destruction on this nation. If the, if the nation of Israel it does not return to the law that I gave Moses. And so... We should remember that as we continue now, and we're going to continue now because we finished the, the portion of the, of, the, of the Torah, of the prophets and the writings, according to the words of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to continue with the writings of his disciples now, which is called by some as time went by New Testament. Now, what is important to realize is that all the writers now in this uh, portion of the Torah of God because the Torah of God, the body of instructions, begins from Genesis and ends up with Revelation. 
and specific is the Torah is referred to the book of Moses, that is the five books, and a specific, as some call it also, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is the book of the law, but the entirety of the body of teachings that God gave to his people, the oracles from beginning until the end, by the same person, Jesus Christ, who is speaking in Genesis and is speaking in Revelation. And some instances here and there, the Father is speaking also. All that is a part of one book. And it is a part of the story of one people and the few that of other nations that are involved in the process. And when you come to begin to understand what the writers of the New Testament are writing, now you can understand them better because they had the background. And if you do not consider the background of all these things that we have read so far and many other things that we have not read, that this was on their mind and from that point of view they spoke and that's why they always said, as it is written, as it is written, they did not even need to refer to it because the people knew what they were talking about because all of them were were uh, aware of it, as Paul told Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. He didn't say you have known the, the Old Testament. See, that's not a biblical terminology. It's not the terminology of the apostles of Jesus Christ. It's the terminology of the great whore, of the harlots, of the counterfeit churches of this world. And people take it for granted. And so they call it the Old Testament. And the other one they call the New Testament. And God made it very plain. And so, when you understand the background, you know now the mind of the writers of the New Testament, so, you know, it's, it's being called, and then you begin to understand what they're talking about. And every statement that they make now, if you read it with this background that you had so far, and if you specifically sit down and just read it as God commanded you to do it, if you are his servants, you should do it. You shouldn't let somebody else just read you a little bit here and a little bit there and think, well, you've done... Uh, your part, and that's it. No, you've got to read it yourself. You study it. Study it to be approved. God commanded us. And it's not a choice that we decide on. And we must know it. We must grow in grace and knowledge and understanding. And we cannot do it unless we do it with our own eyes. And so God made it possible for us. And so with this in mind, then when you begin into this segment of the writings of the disciples, then you understand what was, is, well, what was it that they were writing. And you're going to see that it is exactly the same story. They never taught, never thought, never believed that God rejected his people Israel, that he's not going to build a new organization, a new church totally separate, made of all the nations of the earth. Far be it from it, they never taught that. That's blasphemy, that's a lie against God himself, against Jesus Christ, who came to his own and made it very plain, and he sent his disciples to his own, and then the Apostle Paul to also bring some of the nations, because that was the rule of the Father to begin with, to be a part of the commonwealth of Israel. But there were the minority, a very small minority. The majority was basically Israel. That's his wife. And so as we now enter into the writings, well, they're called, you know, the first one are called the four Gospels. Uh, disciples didn't call them the four Gospels. Uh, all this uh, terminology that we are familiar with and aware of and think that it is of the Bible didn't come from God and didn't come from his disciples either. It came from those who later on canonized the Bible and they happened to be children of the counterfeit church. And uh, not that it's wrong to say the gospel according to Matthew, you know, it's the good news according to Matthew because it's good news, everything is good news. 
But uh, be aware of the terminology where it came from, who, who, who uh, coined it, and what was their intent. They wanted a total separation between what they call the Old Testament, the religion belonging to the Jews, ancient Israel, not to them, and their own new religion. So much of that has to do with Babylon. That's why God says, you come out of Babylon. And when you go to the nation of Israel, he told Israel, I don't want you to learn the ways of the heathen and worship me that way. And many people today worship God through the ways of the heathen and the concepts of the heathen about his writings that he gave to the disciples. And we have to be aware of that. And so now we're going to the writings of the disciples. And we're going to continue exactly the same story, and we're going to see it very plainly. And so, we're going to see in uh, first in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, quoting again from the, the prophets, and this is what we read. Uh, in verse 5 it says, And also they say to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, in other words, when Herod uh, wanted to know, about the king of the Jews, as we're in, in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, uh, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And people don't know who are those wise men. You know, they have their, their own concepts of that. And basically, it's deception, what they have. Because this man who came from the east came from the children of Israel. That's what children of Israel were at the time. Back east. The, you know, they the the Parthian Empire and, and the Scythian Empire and also the children of Judah that were in Babylon, they were all back east. So this is where they came from. It's not, you know, the, the, the invention that they, you see in Christmas time. It's all a part of the counterfeit church. All lies, 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 from the beginning until the end, mixed with a little bit of truth here and there. And so these people came from the people of Israel to Jerusalem because they knew the scriptures they knew the book of Daniel, they knew the prophecy, and they knew the timing. And they also had a revelation from God about the timing and about their commission to go and see the birth of Jesus Christ, at least to see the child. And so they came asking, where is he who has, born, who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So God was going to bring some witnesses from the children of Israel to come and see. Because later on he was going to send them also a message and send the message, his disciples to them, to all the children of Israel. And so he was preparing the ground for them too. And verse 3, And when Herod king, uh, the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Because he knew that he was going to be born at that time. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. And they didn't say, well, we don't know. Of course they did. They were fully aware of the prophecies, and that's what they told him. Verse 5, so they say to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And they did not even need to quote the prophet. Even Herod knew it. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Very plain statement. The story goes on. God never rejected his people. God never rejected his church. God never rejected his wife. And 
the God that came now in the flesh is that very one that married her and the one that is going to atone for her sins and the one that is going to remarry her and the one who is going to make a new covenant with her the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the story is very plain there is no reason to be deceived there has never been any reason to be deceived but because people didn't read the word of God they were deceived unlearned and the deceivers that came among them relied on that fact and when they could they burned the Bible and when they could not burn the Bible, they just told them it's a sin to read the Bible. How convenient. Now, we should not be in that category, and we have no reason to be deceived. And if we are deceived, it's because we are still a part of Babylon to one degree or the other. And God tells us, come out of Babylon. You shouldn't be deceived. You've got the word right in front of you, I know, under your nose. And so that is, God made it very plain. So the story goes on. He never rejected his people. And then we go to verses 16 and 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts from the two, from two years of old, and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. You see the link constantly, and that's the background of the writers of the, of the, of, you know, the disciples of Jesus Christ, of what is called the New Testament. And without their background, you don't know what they're talking about. You must have their background. You must know their mind. You must know what's on the mind of the author before you come. So people would say, well, I don't want to hear about the Old Testament. Just read me the New Testament. They're totally ignoramus people, illiterate people. Biblically illiterate, not wise. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. And we read it earlier. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there are no more. Now, why is Rachel is here? Well, who are the people who lived uh, on uh, the northern part of Jerusalem? The children of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was her younger son. That's why Rachel is here. Rachel was not the mother of Judah. She was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And so, this is why in Ramah, which was in the territory of Benjamin, this statement was made. And so, God is bringing the two together. The whole story is one, linking the two. There is no reason to be deceived and confused. And she is weeping for her children. Her children are the children of Israel. And are the children of the nations. And let's go to chapter 3. And we read here. In verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's not Palestine, some people like to call it, and they refer to it Palestine even long, long, long before that. And some in their ignorance, and they show more than just ignorance there, but there is a trace of anti-Semitism there and undercurrent, they may not even realize it. They say, well, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came into the land of Palestine. And... Uh, that's gross ignorance, and sometimes one will wonder whether it is willful ignorance of truth because of an attitude that is there. And so he came into the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! To whom is he speaking? To his own people. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom for whom? The kingdom for Israel. You see, he knew it very well that the kingdom is coming to Israel because the king is coming to rule over Israel. And the story is still the same. Verse 3, For this is he who was spoken 
of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as we read in Isaiah chapter uh, 40, or chapter 35, uh, prepare the way of the eternal, make his path straight, actually in chapter 40, uh, and you see the story, it is, it is linked together. In other words, all the quotes that you see here basically tell you what's on the mind of the writers of uh, of uh, this portion that is called later on the New Testament by others, not by God. And there is no difference between uh, the first portion that we just read, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and this. It's all one book, one story, one nation, one people, one church. And so, let's continue to uh, to chapter 4 now in verse 12 where we read, in verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and having and living Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun, or Zebulun, and Naphtali, or Naphtali, in Naphtali in English, Naphtali in Hebrew, uh, verse 14, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, you see, it's one book, you cannot separate one from the other. You cannot say, well, the, the Old Testament is a Jewish book and the New Testament is, you know, the, 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 the book of the, uh, the church, you know, the Gentile church, as it has been uh, said for many centuries. It's one book of one people, and it's Israel, and it's not a Gentile church. It's the church of God. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the, of the nations, or Gentiles, the people who sat, in other words, in the territory of the, of the Galilee, and many other nations settled in those areas, so it's speaking about them, and so it says in verse 16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region, that is Galilee, and shadow of death, light has drawn, speaking about the coming of Christ. And so in verse 17 we read, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, that is to his own people, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the very kingdom the disciples were talking about. And this kingdom is not the concept of the Gentiles, of the full church that came later on, something in heaven, but it is on this earth, with David as the king, with God here, with all of Israel back in their land, and this is a totally different concept. Anyway, we're going to stop at this point. This is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. Until next time. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions, the Bible has answers.